Let me welcome you again here this morning. We are uh, grateful that, to have you here as we, as we worship and as we uh, give thanks to God. Thank you also in advance for your, your kindness and your generosity uh, in contributing to help with those who are, are still, as we just prayed, suffering from some of those floodwaters you may or may not have known in our news cycle. Uh, once things happen, we, we cover it to death, and then uh, just two weeks later, uh, I didn't know that there were places that were still flooding, so that, that hopefully, um, that hopefully convicted uh, us to be able to, to give as we can, and, and as we just prayed, praying that God would transfigure that money and use it in a way that, that blesses others. Uh, he who has the most toys wins. <laughs> You've heard that, right? Uh, there were times you'd see that on a, on a bumper sticker uh, around town or, or maybe, you know, hear somebody kind of saying that in a, a flippant sort of way. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that, that we really believe that. I don't know that we really believe that uh, we win if we, we die with the most toys. Uh, but we sure enjoy shopping for them, don't we? <laughs> uh, did you know that one of the industries that has been uh, really kind of bulletproof through the economic downturn of the last uh, 10 or 12 years or so has been the, the self-storage industry. Uh, anytime you turn around, you look at a, a plot of land where something is being built, uh, odds are pretty good that it might be one of these self-storage units. Uh, we don't have enough room for the toys that we do have, even though we might not believe that uh, you win if you die with the most toys. Did you know that since 2012, that self-storage industry has grown at a year-over-year -year rate of over 7%? And in 2016, the self-storage industry made nearly $33 billion in this country, which, for the record, is three times the amount, nearly, that Hollywood grossed in that same period of time. Unbelievable. <laughs> that is uh, definitely big business. So you know that to be true. We, we look around, we, we see that. But there's also this, this trend that's happening in our culture. According to researchers from Columbia University, they note that depression is, is on the rise in this country as well. In fact, at a, at a fairly alarming rate, to be honest. You look at those two data points and you say, okay, well, clearly we, we have more toys than, than ever before, but are they really making us any happier and one of the primary identities that we assume at a pretty early age at least in this country we assume that identity of a consumer and that, that's probably because we are are the product of countless hours of advertising from our earliest ages all the way to now from from a variety of inputs you know whether it's it's billboards or pop-up ads, radio and, and, and commercial advertisements, we, we are just bombarded, aren't we, with advertising. When we go to the beach, uh, we kind of play a little game in the car. We start counting up the Alexander Shannara billboards between here and there. <laughs> the fact that you even know his name proves my point, right? Some of you probably know the phone number for Charles Pittman. Not because you've called it, but because you've heard it over and over in advertisement. So we're bombarded with these images. And so what does that do to us? Well, it makes us think of ourselves primarily as consumers. And, and advertising agencies, you know, they, they understand this. They know 
that one of the most important things in order to, to change our desires, one of the most important things is to put an image in front of us repeatedly. If you put an image in front of someone repeatedly, you will increase their desire for that object. You will capture the imagination. And so that's why advertisers will, will spend millions of dollars for those little 30-second ads in the Super Bowl, right? Because that's when people are watching. And all that, that advertising, it does something. It, it sort of plays on one of our deeply held longings, and that is, that is the longing for more. The longing to have more and, and, and more. And a lot of times it comes from a place of, of insecurity. So what we're seeking is we're seeking greater security. We're seeking safety as we try to acquire more and more. But that need, that, that desire is, is often insatiable. About 400 years before the birth of Jesus, Socrates was teaching that if a man wasn't content with what he had, then he wouldn't be content with what he wanted to have. I think there's some truth to that. And even earlier than Socrates, Solomon was saying this in the book of Ecclesiastes, whoever loves money never has money enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. So in stadiums around the country, right now, this very moment, there are NFL players who are preparing for today's game. One of those players who will not be playing today is the running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers. His name is Le'Veon Bell. And in the offseason, the Steelers put the franchise tag on their star running back. And what that means is that he was, was offered a contract to play this current NFL season. He was offered a contract worth $14 million. Now, he was already the league's highest paid running back last year. He already was making $12 million. And yet now, nearly a month into the season, Bell has not played a single down for the Pittsburgh Steelers as he holds out for a more lucrative long-term deal. He's also killing my fantasy football team, by the way. It's easy to condemn professional athletes when this happens, right? I mean, 14 million or 12 million, you know, split the difference, most of us would be happy, right? So it's easy to go there, that, that's kind of the low-hanging fruit on this discussion, but, but here's the thing, we all are guilty on this one when it comes to the desire for more. When it comes to the desire for wanting more and more, we can all be a little selfish. It's just that when you and I act selfish, it usually doesn't make national headlines. ESPN doesn't lead with that story, right? When I was in the youth group years ago now, um, my, my youth minister told us a, a story when we were... Um, we were in a devotional setting once, and it, it stuck with me now all these years later. He said, I want you to imagine that this, this uh, semi-truck, this 18-wheeler, just backs up to your front door. And you go outside, and you open up the doors, you throw them open, and it's just filled with stacks of cash. I mean, just like a limitless amount of, of money is in the, the back of this semi-truck. He said, and you can go back and forth, taking as much as you want 
from the truck into your house, back and forth and back and forth. And his question was, when would you stop? You know, how much would be enough? You want enough to cover tomorrow's lunch? Would that be enough? Maybe a, a, enough to, to buy a new car? Would that be enough? I mean, when, when would you stop? And, it, and his point was a, a good one. We're usually not, not really great at determining when enough is enough. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons. In fact, we don't do a great job of determining when enough is enough. I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus has so much to say about money and possessions and accumulation. He has so much to say about that in the Gospels. Now, you could, you could say, I think, pretty confidently that the primary theme of the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, he's primarily teaching about the kingdom of God. I mean, that, that's what Jesus returns to. That's his point of emphasis, okay? But, but money is, is like the central topic that he comes back to over and over as a way of, of applying what he's taught about the kingdom. He wants us, he wants his followers to understand, especially this one, money and possessions from a kingdom perspective. And so that's why Jesus has so much to say about money. In fact, he talks about money and wealth and possessions more than any other topic. So you can see here, there's, there's this, an, an estimated 500 verses in the scriptures that are specifically talking about faith, okay? Or, excuse me, specifically talking about, about prayer. And uh, that would make prayer one of the, the more important topics in the scriptures. But there are over 2,000 verses that similarly talk about money and possessions someone else has estimated that of those 38 parables that jesus teaches in the gospels that 16 of those deal with this relationship our relationship to our stuff our relationship to our money and a whopping 10 percent of the verses in the gospels deal with this deal with this kind of financial matters so to me, it's, it's pretty clear that God wants us to have this, this understanding, this essential understanding of how, how we as disciples of Jesus engage and think, think about our relationship with our stuff. One of the places that Jesus talks about this is in Luke chapter 12. And Jesus makes this statement that is a, a good sort of summary statement for what we want to say about about our wealth and our possessions today. Be on guard, Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. That's an interesting statement. Not just one kind of greed, but according to Jesus, there are many forms of greed. So be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then this, a man's life can, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus goes on from there to tell a story kind of illustrate his point he tells a story about a man who tore down his barns to build bigger ones and in that particular story he he experiences the judgment of god god actually takes his life and so jesus driving to this point there at the end of that teaching he says in verse 21 this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward god so again, we are to be on guard against the multiple forms of greed. And so I think Jesus here is referring to this desire for more 
wealth, more possessions, uh, more luxury, I guess. You know, the list could go on and on from there. But then Jesus reminds us of this really essential point that, that life is not really about the abundance of our possessions. It's not really about the, the size of our nest egg. How much we put away for retirement, it, it's about something much deeper. And in a world like ours, a world that is saturated with advertising, I think that is a reminder we desperately need. In his book, This Is Our Time, the author Trevin Wax demonstrates how our advertising often takes a, a seductively spiritual form. He writes, you're about to enter a building that is set apart, a place where you hope to join with others and experience something special. As you walk along the streets and draw closer to this sanctuary, this refuge in the midst of a bustling city, you sense that this building itself is speaking to you. The transcendence of the architecture says you will experience something otherworldly in this place. You notice that the doors are huge. They're much bigger than they need to be. They could be described as oversized and fantastic. And their heaviness communicates something about the weightiness of this experience. They add a dramatic flourish to the ritual of entering this place. And once you're inside, you feel small, and the place feels sacred. So he, he says, so where do you think you are? Most people would say, well, I feel like I, in that setting I would be in a, in a medieval church or some kind of, you know, ancient cathedral. He says, actually, I'm describing the Apple Store in Manhattan. He says, I can't blame you for picturing a church or a temple, but, and he quotes from an article which is entitled, Are Apple Stores the New Temples, which focus on how Apple tries to cultivate a spiritual experience through the use of physical space. He goes on to describe those who work there in the Apple Store, the Apple geniuses. He calls them the the priests in this new culture. They're mediating Apple's promises back to the people. The author of the article says, Apple seems to understand that the people who visit their store are looking for answers to questions deeper than how they should make calls or connect to the internet. On the walls of the stores, framed by the border of a screen, are pictures of planets and star systems. With our Apple devices, they seem to be promising you can understand the entire universe so advertising it taps into our longing for wholeness our longing for for more and in that culture shopping becomes that religious activity that that intends to satisfy those needs but that's a myth there's this mythical story being told in our culture that that salvation comes through accumulation through possession we know that's a false story. All that shopping, it, it, it might, might give us a little high, might give us a little hit for a while, we might walk away feeling good, but, but eventually, how long does it take for, that, for the novelty of that item to wear off? How long does it take before you start looking at that, at that item? Just, it's not, it doesn't, doesn't quite have the same luster it once did. All, all of our shopping, oftentimes, we're just, just buying the next round of things that are going to go into a landfill someday somewhere all of that advertising shopping and commerce it's even affected the way that we mark time hasn't it there's a time when our holidays were just that they were holy days they were days set apart 
day set apart for, among other things, religious observation. Well, not so anymore. <laughs> Today we mark time, we mark holidays as, as shopping days. Have you noticed over the last few years that the line has almost completely blurred between Thanksgiving Thursday and Black Friday? Right? I mean, now there's, you know, stores are open 6, 6 p.m., open noon on Thursday. We, we keep backing it up, you know. Keep waiting for somebody to get ahead of the game. Hey, we're going to open on Wednesday, you know. Come and shop with us then. It was 2005, I think it was, that a new term kind of entered our vocabulary on this. Cyber Monday. If you don't like what you find on Black Friday or that weekend, you know, you just wait for the wraparound. And, that, and so now that, that begins for us this season in earnest where everything is focused on shopping, inquiring, and spending. It's all just a prelude to the, to the Christmas holiday season. And then as soon as January hits, you know what? What are you being sold then? Right? Weight loss plans, right? Gym memberships, all that stuff. Then February is my favorite, right? You're duty-bound, obligated to spend even more money on the person that you love. Chocolates and Hallmark. You know, and then we, go, we, go, we mark every significant holiday almost just by what we have to buy and shop. We're, we're sold you know, flowers on Mother's Day and ties on father's day and and fireworks on the fourth of july and grills on memorial day we mark time not as holy events holy days set apart for god anymore but as shopping days and yet in all of that it's it's really never enough writer of ecclesiastes said all man's efforts are for his mouth yet his appetite is never satisfied the good part of all this is that, is that we're drawn to these possessions because, again, we have a desire for comfort and stability and security, and those impulses are all very, very good. But the lie at work there, that's what's dangerous. The lie that accumulation is the goal of life, that comfort and stability and security are found through stuff, through wealth. That's the great myth of consumerism. Jesus teaches that riches and pleasure, the pursuit to accumulate it can actually choke out desire for god in one of his messages one of the stories he was telling about a sower who's sowing seed here and there he explains that here in, in luke 8 and he says that the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear but they go on their way and they're, they're choked by life's worries choked by life's riches and its pleasures and therefore he says they do not mature we see the danger, don't we? In this mythical story, we've been saying for a while, you never experience true life living in a false story. So Jesus exposes that. He says that's not the good life. Elsewhere, he says you can't serve both God and money. So the question then for us is, how can we be faithful in this kind of world? How can we orient our lives around the light of the gospel rather than the lies of our society and and i think there's plenty of good news here and i think i think that's mainly what jesus drives at in his teaching on this in the gospel it will require great intentionality on our part in order to be faithful in days like this and in particular i think it will require intentionality in a few key areas and this is where we'll close one i think it will require us to be intentional about this about reorienting our vision around the kingdom of God. 
The prevailing vision for many in our culture is this vision of the American dream, this vision of, of social mobility and achievement and wealth and accumulation. It is the controlling story for many uh, in our culture. It has been for some time. Uh, this is what many would consider to be the good life. You work hard, accumulate more, acquire more. But, but we need to reorient our vision, not around that dream and that hope, but instead around the vision of the kingdom of God. This is our vision for all things, whether ethical, practical, financial, it doesn't matter. So a reorientation around our vision of the kingdom of God is essential. So we're back to that advertising principle, advertising 101. Repeated exposure captures our imagination and increases our desire. That is true in a positive sense, just as, as much as it is true in a negative sense. So this is where we ask ourselves, is the vision that we continue to return to, the vision that captures our imagination and changes our desires, is it a vision held out to us by the world, or is it the vision of the kingdom of God as revealed in the scriptures? And if it's the vision of the kingdom of God, then we begin to understand that the fundamental story that defines our lives, it, it need not be growth in wealth or growth in possessions, but instead it becomes growth in Christ-likeness. Augustine, many centuries ago, said that our loves have a certain weight to them. That the things that, that we love, the objects of our love, have a gravitational pull to them. And I think he's right. Because he says if the things that we love are material things, then those material things have a weight to them that will drag us down into a base material level. And we become shaped in a particular way based on what we love. That's spiritual formation, and it is happening all the time. It can happen both positively, and it can also happen negatively. So when we are in love with stuff, in love with wealth, in love with things, we are being spiritually formed in a downward kind of way. Our thinking gets grounded here. Our longings, our desires are grounded there. And so, because that's the vision that's held before us, that's what we long for, that's what we desire, that's oftentimes what we get. But that is why we, at the end, feel so shallow and so hollow. That's why we have more stuff than ever before, and yet we're more depressed than ever before. Because that's a mythical story. It is a lie. But instead, as Augustine says, when we orient our loves around spiritual things, transcendent things, heavenly things, guess what? There's a gravitational pull to those things as well, and it begins to elevate our desires. It begins to mold us and shape us spiritually into the image and the pattern of Jesus. So in a very real sense, you do become what you love. To put it in Paul's words in the book of Colossians chapter 3, he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So discipleship is about setting our minds on heavenly things. It's about changing the weight of our love. To embrace the dream of the kingdom of God and no other dream. My friend Randy Harris tells a story about uh, someone he knows, this is, I, supposedly really happened, a, a friend of his who bought a brand new truck, drove home, got out, took a hammer, and put a dent in the, in the side door. And the question is, okay, you know, why in the world would you, would you do that? 
And the guy's answer, he said, well, you know, until that truck gets its first dent, I'm going to be worried about it. I'm going to be worried like crazy. So in order to really use it, I thought I'd bring it home and I'd put the first dent in it myself. And I, I, I love that mentality. I'm not necessarily suggesting you go do that, okay? But I, I love the thought where Randy goes. He says, here's the thing like, about that little story that, that makes it important is it's an example of someone whose, whose idea of wealth is, is oriented around the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a place where we're called to love people and use things. And the message of the world is usually the opposite. Use people because you love things. Jesus says no. It's not about using people because you love things. It's about loving people and using those things, those resources, as a means to which we can share the love of God with others. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a far better story. So reorienting our vision around the kingdom of God requires great intentionality. Now, number two, there's this. We need to also revise our questions to match our vision. So, for instance, just using the American dream as an example, the American dream, the question that would be asked there is, did I achieve my financial goals this year? And that's not that that's a bad question, but that can't be the only question. That can certainly feed into then the kingdom question. The kingdom dream asks not just that, but elevating to that sort of spiritual next level kingdom dream asks, did I use my resources to advance kingdom goals this year? Totally different question, right? American dream asks, is my financial portfolio growing? The kingdom dream asks, is the kingdom of God growing? The American dream asks, am I working hard enough to own my possessions? And the kingdom dream asks, am I depending upon God enough so that my possessions don't own me? After reorienting our vision around the kingdom of God more fully, we will naturally need to revise our questions from to, to, to match, match our vision. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 13, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So the question therefore becomes, is my life free from the love of money? Am I content with what I have, knowing that God has promised to be with me, to never forsake me, as the text goes on from there to say? And I think that's a question that is really difficult to answer on your own. Because I think everybody thinks they're sitting on the 50-yard line on that. You know? Is my life free from the love of money? You will always be able to find someone that you'll be able to point to and say, at least I'm not, I'm not that. That person seems to be more materialistic than me, more greedy. So, so I'm not that. So clearly, I'm doing okay. <laughs> because everybody thinks that they're seated right there on, you know, at midfield on that. And what it takes, it takes people in your life who love you, love you enough to like answer the hard questions when you ask it, be able to say to you, yeah, you know, you might not be Le'Veon Bell over here, okay, but can we talk about X, Y, Z? And that, require, that requires a certain level of trust that I think you, you, you might get with your family, but the concept of the people of God, the concept of church, 
That's where we come in. That's what we're supposed to be for one another. That's why we keep preaching the importance of small groups around here. Finding a place where you can really connect with somebody who can look you in the eye and, and pray with you and love you, but love you enough to also kind of challenge you in that iron sharpening iron kind of way. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what we need, we need a community of like-minded disciples around us asking us what we really and truly treasure. Finally, because we're, we're talking about this in the context of church, I think we also, after we reorient that vision and kind of refocus, reclarify some of those questions, I think we also have to reclaim a proper understanding of church. And you may wonder, okay, that's kind of a sidestep, and maybe it is uh, to a certain degree. But let me ask, what happens when consumerism seeps into the church? You see where we're going now? What happens when that consumerism that, that, we, that we live with, a consumeristic identity that we adopt from an early age, what happens when that begins to, to creep into the church? From where I stand, and I, I may be wrong about this, but from where I stand, this may be the most, the greatest threat to the church in this country today. When my entire world is tailored to meet my needs, to fulfill my desires, inevitably I will begin to see the church in the same light. My church leaders are, are, are just there to keep me happy, and the, the church programs are just in place to serve my needs, and, and I begin to import that consumeristic mentality into the church, and suddenly, church becomes all about me and what I want, instead of it being all about Jesus and what he wants. We know, right? We know that's not the proper understanding of the church. We know that. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. But we, we know that deep down in our bones that, that the church is, is a place where we have all died to self. The church is that, is, is that assembly of people who've said yes to the promise of Jesus that when we die to self, we find real life. And that in that death, we become the people who God wants us to be we take jesus at his word when he says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross how often daily and follow me the church does not exist the church does not exist to please me or to make me happy the church exists as an expression of the lordship of Jesus in both word and deed. It means it's not about you. And it's not about me. But instead, it's, it's about him. And faithfulness in a time of extreme consumerism means reclaiming that proper understanding of the Lord's body. With all that in mind, let's close out this time together with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we bow before you in this moment, filled with humility that you would take a moment to hear from us, Father. 
Father, we want to give a hearing to these words, these words and so many more in your word, where you challenge us, where you call us to a, a deeper understanding, a deeper awareness of our possessions and the power they have upon us, our wealth and what truly matters. Lord God, I just pray that you would continue to teach us and shape us through the power of your word resting in our hearts. Father God, for, for anything said here in this context today that does not point us back to a better version of ourselves through Christ Jesus, God, I pray that that would just, that would just fall away. And God, I pray that what is left is, is the truthfulness of what truly matters in the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to orient our lives fully around the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Trusting that all these things will be added unto us when we do. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy today. More than anything else, we thank you for Jesus who makes this prayer possible. We pray this in his name. Amen. If you need to respond in any way today to the power, the grace, and the love of God, I hope you'll do so. Let's stand together and let's sing.